Every week, the Orange Fizz team breaks down the five most pressing questions about Syracuse athletics. Holy cow, what a big-time defensive play! No holds barred. I pity the fool. It's the Fizz Five. Five! It's another edition of Fizz Five coming at you here. Francesco Simone and Adam Godkin on this time. Adam, it's your first Fizz Five. First of all, welcome to the Fizz family, my friend. Thank you very much, Francesco. Great to be here. All right. Now, you got to tell me, first of all, what's your most excited thing that you're looking forward to in Fizz? Uh, I think it's got to be starting to cover some more games in the Dome. It's one of the most special places in the country to watch a basketball game, watch a football game. and yeah, really, really excited for that. Adam's a really talented kid. You're going to be hearing a lot from him over the next couple of years, and we're excited to have you on board, Adam. We can't wait. So let's get things started. A lot of basketball, a lot of football today. We start with basketball, and that's topic number one. Number one. So, Adam, the NBA draft was just a couple of days ago, and to no one's surprise, there was no Syracuse player drafted. That's because there was no Syracuse player draft eligible who was actually in the NBA draft, which is a problem in and of itself, right? But obviously nobody gets taken. You're not going to see any Syracuse players signing undrafted free agent contracts. Nobody's headed to the NBA this year. But it's never too early to look at next year's NBA draft, right? And a couple of guys, Judah Mintz and J.J. Starling, have already had their names thrown out there in 2024 NBA mock drafts. Obviously, had Judah gone out to the NBA draft this year, he probably gets picked. My first question for you is, were you surprised that he came back, and do you think he should have come back? I wasn't surprised. I think the talk was late second round, if not undrafted. And if you're a guy like Judah Mintz, you see that you had a real chance to potentially up your draft stock this upcoming year. The NBA is such a shooting league. And Judah Mintz just right now doesn't fit that. This past year, I mean, if he was playing in 2005, he probably would have been the top 10 pick just based on his slashing abilities. But that doesn't translate as much to the NBA nowadays. He's got this year to work on that shooting. Hopefully, he'll have a better team around him, which, of course, helps if you're on a team that's barely above 500. Your NBA draft prospects are not going to be that high. I think that this upcoming year, he really has a chance to work on that shooting work on a couple of the other kind of flaws in his game and get up to that 15-10 lottery range, which I think he really has the talent and potential to do so. Let me tell you why I was a little bit surprised, Adam. One of those things, everybody talks about the shooting, right? And rightfully so. About a 35% three-point shooter, not great, but he did get a lot better towards the end of the year. 30%, I should say. He was about 30%, not 35%. You wish he was at 35%. He got a lot better towards the end of the year. But at the same time, he's probably a second-round pick like you mentioned. And with that, if you're a top 45 pick, you get guaranteed money. And even if you're not, you're probably going to go to the G League, maybe sign a two-way contract as well. What I thought would happen was he would take that route, continue his development at the professional level against better competition than you're going to face in college, and then maybe play a couple of games in the NBA next year as well. How much better of competition is the NBA G League, though, compared to to the ACC, I mean, I mean, you have G League Ignite, G League Ignite, which is playing, of course, guys out of high school in that league, and I don't feel like those players have completely dominated in the NBA as much. So, if he was going to go to the G League, not make that much money, and probably make a similar amount of money to he could at Syracuse with NIL, which we'll get into a little bit more later, then I don't understand for him the point of going there because that's such a risk, especially 
when if not, if he comes back, he can be, you know, you also talk about it. These are college students, two years into a college degree. If things don't work out, he's got to look at his future because we're talking late second round pick, maybe top 45 of getting that guaranteed money. But even if he's there, then he's in the NBA G League where he's going to continue working and fighting where he's playing in front of hundreds of fans a night in a lot of places. I know the capital city go-go where I'm from getting maybe like 50 fans a night. How much is that going to help your development compared to playing at the dome in front of 30,000 fans in raucous environments and really working on and playing guys that are at your level because the ACC is a really strong basketball conference. I mean, it didn't really feel like it during the regular season last year, but during the NCAA tournament, we saw it once a Again, you know, we saw it last year in the NCAA tournament, even though it was a weak year in the regular season. So, you know, he's got time and he's got really good talent that I think in the college level, he can improve his game against. I agree with everything you just said, and I'm glad he came back to Syracuse. You certainly know (laughs) that I am. However, the one thing that I will push back on you with is, listen, you compare the G League to any college conference. I don't care if it's the ACC, the Big Ten, the Big 12, the SEC, doesn't matter. The competition's better for a couple of reasons. One, it's you got some of the best young players in the con- in the country with the G League Ignite and things of that nature. But more so, you've got grown men playing in the G League who were the best players on their college team, at least some of the best players on their college team. Now they moved on after four or five years in college, and some of those guys have spent legitimate time in the NBA. So those guys are 23, 24, 25, 26 year old, years old. Some of them 30 years old who have years of NBA experience under their belt versus guys you're playing against now who are 18, 19, 20, 21, some of them 23 years old, but who have never played professional basketball. I feel like it's, it's, it's a bit of a different story if you're a big man versus a guard like Jude Mintz. You know, he's a guy who is not going to be banging down low because the size difference is definitely such a big thing when you get to the professional ranks of basketball where every single team has a seven-footer and a big seven-footer who can get those rebounds. That's not Judamins. Judamins is a guy who's going to be outside. When we talked about what he needs to improve on, it's that shooting, which the difference between how much you would you know get better on that in the G League versus in the college ranks is, I think, pretty minuscule because at the end of the day, that's something that, He's working on in the gym. That's not something that he really needs to get better at in game itself. I mean, there's a couple things in game where he struggled at late game situations. He kind of had some falters, but at the same time, you know, he can work on that in game at Syracuse. I think it was the best decision for him to come back. I think he came back for a reason. It felt like the entire time that he wasn't going to. I mean, there were months on end where Syracuse was getting ready to go without Judah Mintz. And I think we saw that with some of the transfer portal recruiting with how many guards came in, of course, JJ Starling, one of them, but also Chance Westry and a few others when, you know, Justin Taylor's back and Kadir Copeland is back and you have so many guards returning to this team. I think that that was just a testament that they didn't know if he was coming back, but he made the decision that was best for himself after such a long time. I mean, literally waiting until like three hours until the deadline to finally make that decision that he was returning to Syracuse. And at the end of the day, I think he made the right decision for himself. And I know that you and I are not going to complain about that because him returning makes this team potentially like pretty good when without him, it was not at all looking like that. And now I think it's important that Adrian Autry has a true draft prospect that he can work on. Because when we talk about recruiting for the future, 
if you get two guys selected in next year's NBA draft, I mean, what does that show the 2025 class and 2026 class and all of those guys moving along? It shows that Adrian Autry can develop players into NBA players as a head coach and the rest of this coaching staff can develop guys to the NBA and not just Jim Bayon. We're certainly both glad that Judah Mintz is coming back. Real quick, Adam, before we wrap things up here on topic number one, the other player who many people think, including you know NBA draft experts from the various outlets that could have a potentially good opportunity to get picked next year, is J.J. Starling. Now, last year at Notre Dame, 11 points per game again, same with Judah, right? 30% from the three, but he's got plenty of talent, former five-star recruit. He's going to have a key role in the Syracuse offense. He's got to get better at shooting as well. He's probably a step behind Judah, if I had to guess, NBA draft-wise. Do you agree with that? I think so, just because he doesn't have that slashing ability that Judah Mintz has. He doesn't have that, you know, just jump off the page athleticism that makes Judah Mintz such a special player to watch. But, I mean, J.J. Starling was a higher-rated recruit than Judah was. He was the number 22 player in the country, the top player in the state of New York. There's a reason that he was there. And, yeah, he struggled a little bit at Notre Dame, but there was also a lot of stuff going on at Notre Dame with, you know, Mike Gray announcing his retirement during the season. He didn't wait until after, like Jim Beheim did, which just put so much, I think, more pressure on that fighting Irish team, which overall was a big disappointment this past year. And right now, I do think that he's below Judah Mintz, but like I said, he was the higher-rated recruit out of high school. He was the number five transfer in the country, 247 said. I do think there's a true chance that J.J. Starling might even pass Judah Mintz, depending on how he has, you know, how good of a season he has this year, because he's a guy with all the potential in the world. He's a really good shooter. That's what he was best at in high school. And if he can pick that up this upcoming year, I think he's a guy who could average 20 points a game in the ACC. All right. Well, that does it for the guard. Syracuse is going to have one of the absolute best guard combinations in the entire ACC with Judah Mintz and J.J. Starling leading the way. But questions remain about the front court, especially the center position. And that's topic number two. Number two. All right, Adam. I'm going to be honest with you here. I don't really know who's playing center for this Syracuse men's basketball team. About a week ago, our very own Liam Griffin, who it's a dear friend of both of ours, wrote that Malik Brown might have a chance to start at center. Frankly, I think that's insane. Adam, I want to get your thoughts before I share mine. I mean, he might be the best option. I understand it because near Hema right now is the starting center, I guess. And what did he do this past year? It's got to be McLeod, no? I mean, maybe, but McLeod barely played at Florida State. Yeah, and when he I know. did, he didn't do much. Like, I thought that people were overhyping the McLeod transfer a lot. I mean, it's probably because his best game was against Syracuse. But outside of that Syracuse game, in the entirety of ACC play, he was quiet. And he's a 7 4 guy. If Adrian Autry wants to really, you know, put build this team around athleticism, putting a guy on the floor who can't really run up and down is not going to help. And I, I just don't know if Naheem McLeod can be that, which puts you in the spot where you have Manir Hema potentially as your starter, which I think is a really scary spot to be in because, you know, he's not a guy who I really want to rely on. Maybe Peter Carey can come back from his red shirt season and become a star, but we don't know that. We've barely seen him play. He played, what, a couple of minutes in the exhibition before 
redshirting and I, I I don't know about that. And then William Patterson, I mean, he's a project if there ever is one. He was I was talking to a couple of people who really know the recruiting ranks and they were saying he was a you know borderline division one prospect at this point and Syracuse just really trusted that they could build him into something. He's I think a guaranteed redshirt this year. So we're really talking about Manir Hima and Peter Carey and Nahima Cloud of the true centers. And outside of them, I do think you have to really look at, you know, Malik Brown potentially starting at center or even maybe Benny Williams. He's like 6'11". You got to think that you can work with him. I mean, he got a lot bigger in the gym this past year and hopefully he can put on enough muscle and get better rebounding and decide that he's not going to want to shoot a bunch of three pointers and potentially he can slide into that number five spot and, Maybe Malik Brown can go to the four, but I do think it's a really big issue for the Syracuse team this year. And it's what's stopping them from potentially being a preseason top 25 team because the rest of the roster around that number five spot, I think is one of the most talented in the ACC. If Jesse Edwards had stayed, the outlook on this team is completely different. You're absolutely right. There's a lot to unpack when it comes to the centers because this is by far the biggest weakness on this team. There's a lot of guys. You you want you mentioned him chapter and verse, right? But Naheem McLeod played 13 minutes a game last year at Florida State. Manir Hima was a good rim protector when he backed up Jesse Edwards. Couldn't do a whole lot else offensively, especially. Peter Carey, foot injury to end of the season, ended up redshirting anyway. William Patterson, you said it. He's a complete project, probably going to redshirt. He might not play for two or three years. The thing about Malik Brown, though, is that when you're playing a 6'8 guy at center, I think you can do it in spurts. I think he can be part of your center rotation, but I don't think he's the guy you're putting out there 25 minutes a game. What Syracuse needs is Naheem McLeod or maybe Munir Hima to become a guy who's, I don't need you to be Jesse Evans. I don't need you to be great. I need you to be okay and not lose me a game at center. Let the rest of the roster gel and get better. Because, again, you got fantastic guards. You got a lot of forwards who have a lot of talent. Hopefully, a Benny Williams, a Chris Bell, a Justin Taylor, a Chance Westry. Two out of those four guys figure it out and become good players. If that becomes the case, then I don't need McLeod to win me a game. I need him to not lose me a game. I just I, In college basketball, there's a lot of teams that will run a 6'8", 6'9", center and they're able to get it done. I, I I think a lot of Marcos Santos Silva, who was at VCU for three years and then was an all big 12 player. He was six, seven on a good day. And he was ran at the number five position. And again, he was all big 12 honorable mention. I think with college basketball and how it's so different from the NBA and the changing of, and the change of styles between teams, you can run a six, eight center and make things work. I mean, there was a couple times it felt like where maybe Malik Brown was put into that center spot for minutes this past year. And I think he did a solid job. And if this team really wants to rely on its athleticism and press and run up and down the floor, then a six, eight center, I don't think is the biggest thing and the biggest deal in the entire world. And you hope again, that Benny Williams is six to 11, that if that he can clean up the boards and that he can potentially guard your you know, seven footer that another team has because he's got the height on them too. I mean, he was six eleven. I thought he almost looked taller than that. He was at some points. It felt like the same height as Jesse Edwards, just when they were standing next to each other. 
and like, you know maybe Benny Williams keeps on growing. It's just I I don't know if it's there, but at the same time I feel like you have to put your best five on the floor, and if Naheem McLeod just isn't good enough to keep up, and he's hindering your abilities to push the pace, and Rainier Hema just can't do enough offensively. Then if you're Adrian Archery, you got to do something else. Like you said, if Jesse Edwards here, I think this is a preseason top 25 team. But that's not there, and so we have so many question marks. With Benny, I he can't even play the four. I mean, he he's he's a he's a small forward who doesn't want to do the dirty work inside. And listen, it's not really necessarily a knock on him. Jim Beheim tried to square try to fit a square peg into a round hole because he is a wing player who Beheim tried to make a 1986 style power forward, and it just didn't work out. I, with Malik, he's might be my favorite player on this team. There is no bigger Malik Brown fan than me. I think he's going to play in the NBA one day. The issue is, and we're going to get into you know matchups and actually running your team based on who you're playing against in in a certain sense in a little bit in a little bit. But if you're playing a Kyle Filipowski at Duke, who's seven feet tall and can shoot the three, you got guys who you know are that kind of size. Who you're right, you're not going to play every night in college basketball. But sometimes you will, and a lot of times you will, especially in the ACC. And then, of course, when you go to Maui as well. When you got a matchup like that, I can't have Malik Brown playing 25 minutes at center. I can have Malik Brown playing 10 minutes at center. If he's if he's better than than whoever's the ends up being the backup, then between you know McLeod and Hema, then fantastic, right? Put him at center for 10, 15 minutes a game. But I think to start him at center is a little bit premature, especially because, listen, you're right. Naheem McLeod has been a career backup at Florida State. He's a Juco kid. He's got all of the physical tools, right? He's seven foot four. He's 260 pounds. He destroyed Syracuse this year. Syracuse fans are very excited about him. I'll pump the brakes a little bit. Let's see what he does. But you at least have to give him a shot to develop in the preseason and then I think early on in the season because when you got that level of talent and you can maybe get something out of it, then that's, you know, that could become a center that's more than just, hey, don't screw it up for me. Play 25 minutes a game and be effective. But Adam, we're going to have to agree to disagree on the center debate. We'll see how much center Malik Brown plays. I think we both think he's going to play some center, but you think he's going to play a little bit more center than I will. Let's move on to topic number three. Speaking of matchup games. Number three. Adam, it's the age-old debate. Zone defense versus man defense what's better what should Syracuse play what will Adrian Autry do now that Jim Beheim is retired interesting comments from Autry in the last couple of weeks where he said listen there's going to be plenty of man but we're not going to abandon the zone to me that's the perfect way to play it if you want to make your main defense man-to-man cool right I don't really have any problem with that the thing is though I don't think they should abandon the zone because I think it's it can be effective if you can play it correctly. I completely agree with you. I, I, I'm exactly in the same spot uh, where I don't think you want your zone at this point and where we are in college basketball to be your main defense. But at the same time, the zone just a couple of years ago brought this team to the Sweet 16. The zone, once you get to the NCAA tournament, is still as good as it used to be. And if you can throw on a really good zone, coached by Adrian Autry, who knows it really well, and these players can pick it up, you can really confuse some other teams. And that defense can turn into something elite if you can go from man-to-man to zone 
and for a couple minutes of the game, just completely fluster another team. And then outside of that, run man and press the heck out of out of, out of your opponent and use your guys like Benny Williams, who's pretty athletic, Malik Brown, who's an athletic specimen, and Judah Mintz, who can run up and down the floor. And you can't and you cannot forget about Kadir Copeland, who was so fun to watch. And I gotta think he's gonna get more minutes this upcoming year. Use that athleticism and really rely on that with the man-to-man. But again, throw in that zone when you need to. And once we get later in towards the season, and if this team makes it to the NCAA tournament, use that zone maybe a little bit more against your non-conference teams. In Maui, use that zone against teams who are probably a lot better than you on paper because they are some of the top teams in the country. Use that zone against them because they don't see it very often. And use the zone where it was meant to be used. Yeah, Autry also said this, that, and I completely agree with him, by the way. This team is kind of built to play zone. Because what do you want when you're playing zone? Athletic guards up top. Judiments, J.J. Starling, Chance Westry. If you want to play with your Copeland, a guard, he's an option there too. Justin Taylor's long and athletic. You got long and athletic forwards who can, you know, they got a wingspan for days. And then you got centers who are 7-4, 7-1 in Hema and McLeod who have you know, plenty of wingspan as well. So they have the talent to play zone. And you're absolutely right. When you're playing teams who don't constantly see it against coaches who don't know how to coach against it, because, you know, it's not just, oh, the average coach in college basketball who plays out West and who never plays Syracuse who doesn't know how to coach zone. Really good coaches throughout college basketball have to coach against the zone once every decade. So they don't know how to coach against it either. If you can implement that against teams in Maui, potentially tournament teams, non-conference opponents in the big in the SEC in the SEC challenge teams who don't know how to play against it you've got the weapons now that you can play against it you don't have Joe Girard at the top of the zone who's a hindrance you don't have Cole Swider and Jimmy Bayheim as your forwards Malik Brown Benny Williams Chris Bell Justin Taylor Kudir Copeland they're a year older they're in the system they understand it Manir Hima has been in the system he understands it McLeod's got to learn it, sure, right? But I'm sure he can figure it out. It's it's conducive to actually playing it. Now, you can argue let's not do it every time, but it can be really effective when used in sports, especially for those reasons. Absolutely. And, you know, that's, I think, part of the reason that we have this roster like this. I think that Adrian Autry was, of course, recruiting the transfer quarter a little bit for the zone. And then Jim Beheim. He was going to play zone, so he recruited guys, the 2022 class, who are ready to play zone defense through long athletic guards because I think he realized that his sons were not the best when it came to the zone. So he was going to really rely on that athleticism that he brought in, and that's what he did. Malik Brown and Kadir Copeland, athleticism is their defining trait. And even Justin Taylor, he's known for being, you know, kind of a little bit more of a shooter, but he's still athletic. So was Chris Bell. And that's what Jim Beheim did. And he's left this team in a spot where I do think they have to play a little bit of zone because they struggled when they played, when they played man last year. I honestly think that Jim Beheim kind of threw the team in demand at some points just to prove people wrong, because I feel like that's kind of the guy that Beheim is to say, oh, look, you know, we go into man and we start losing because of the fact that, you know, he didn't coach it probably that much in practice because the zone is something you have to spend so much time on. But we still got to play a little bit of zone. I don't think we can fully go to the man 
um, when it comes to Syracuse. And at the end of the day, if they're spending enough time on zone where it's not going to be a hindrance when you implement it, and it's good enough to win you games but not rely on it in the ACC against coaches who know what they're doing against it and are going to shoot 40% from three against you and are going to put up 100 easily. That's when you play man. And you got to just figure out, you know, when are you going to switch between the two? And, you know, we might see some issues with that this year. Adrian Autry, a first-year head coach, he's been an assistant his entire career at the college level. It might take him a little bit to get used to that and to figure out when to change between the two. But at the end of the day, I do think that Autry is going to figure it out in terms of the defense. Last year, I don't think it mattered what defense Syracuse played. It wasn't the fact that they played zone. It was the fact that they were just bad at playing defense. Man-to-man zone, I don't think it would have mattered a whole lot. All right, last thing before we move on, Adam, one word answer. What percentage of the time does Syracuse play zone defense this coming season? 25. I was going to say 20. I think we're I think we're in that same ballpark. We think it'll be man mostly with a little bit of zone mixed in, and hopefully that can be more effective for Adrian Autry and company. That wraps it up for Syracuse basketball talk, but still two topics to get to, and they both revolve around football. Mentioned Adrian Autry, Adam. Another coach to talk about. That's topic number four. Number four. Dino Babers and the hot seat. It's a topic that it comes up every year right around this time, right, Adam? Going into almost into fall camp. We're probably about a month, month and a half away from training camp getting going. And John Wildhack had a press conference just a couple of days ago. And, of course, he was asked, listen, what's Dino Babers' job security like? And he said he's got multiple years left on his contract. Adam, I think they need to go like 1-11 for Dino to get fired. I really don't think it's even an option on the table. They're not going to go 1-11. I don't think there's any chance he gets fired. I think that I agree with you on the fact that he has to go 1-11 to get fired, but I don't think that's how it should be. Dino Babers has made two bowl games in seven years as the head coach of Syracuse, and now 2020 is one of those, and you can say, okay, he's made two in six years. But if he didn't have that crazy 2018 or the season with, you know, where this team won 10 games, he wasn't going to get extended other than that. I mean, this team has been at best okay outside of the one really, really good season last year. Yeah, they won six in a row. But after that, everything fell apart. And I do think that, you know, Dino Babers should be on the hot seat because of what's gone down on the recruiting trail. Last year's recruiting class was embarrassing. The 73rd overall class, the 91st composite ranking on 247, it's combining your high school recruiting and transfer recruiting. That's just straight up like bad. That's really bad and really, really concerning. When your recruiting class is so bad, it's worse than UTSA. And you can't, you know figure out what's going to happen here and you know what your talent's going to look like when you lost a good amount of guys to the portal and to the NFL draft. I'm really worried about the Syracuse football team this year. I honestly do think that there's a small chance that they win two games. They don't win a single ACC game. I am extremely concerned with the Syracuse football team for this upcoming year. Just because, I mean, they weren't good enough, I don't think, 
they weren't as good as their record last year. They barely won a couple of those games to start the season against Purdue and Virginia and NC State playing a backup quarterback. I mean, they probably should have finished with four or five wins last year. On paper, this is a probably way worse roster. And I don't know if they'll get there, which made John Mollenhack's comments to me pretty concerning of saying that I think we've had a really good offseason. He likes the assistant coaches that have been brought in. I mean, I, I don't think any of them really jumped off the screen. And then you know, talking about how at the end of the day, his quote was, you want to be good enough for your playing that 13th game. They've very rarely made it to that 13th game. And I don't think they will again. And if we're talking two bowl games in eight years for Dino Babers, at what point do you just have to let it go? Because this is a program that, not too long ago, was seriously competing in the top 25 every single year. I mean, you have to go back to the late 90s for that. And so many legends that have come out of Syracuse football, you can't just be complacent with winning six, seven games. And it's not easy. It is one of the hardest jobs in all of Power Five, I think, recruiting up here to Central New York and, you know, all the stuff that comes with that and NIL and how that works around football and Syracuse being a basketball school. It's not easy for Dino Babers to recruit, but at the same time, it's been a failure in the past couple of years. You, you mentioned UTSA as a school that was ranked ahead of Syracuse. I, I think the perfect example that debunks the whole, you know, the reason this recruiting class was so poorly ranked was because of, oh, it's upstate New York and the weather's bad and there's not a lot of talent up here, yada, yada, yada. Temple was ahead of them, right? You can't get out recruited by Temple. I, I, it, there's no excuse for that. So yes, you're hundred percent right. The recruiting class this year is a concern. I think from a talent level, this team is a good step worse than it was last year. However, the schedule is, I think a couple of steps worse than it was last year. You got three gimmies. You got BC at home, Virginia tech, wake forest, Georgia tech. They're all going to be pretty bad teams in the ACC. I think there's at least five wins on the table. I think you could get to six. Um, I I don't see a scenario where this team is two and ten or even three and nine. I think the absolute floor for them is four and eight, and I think that's even pushing it. So I I I would be if you told me that Dino Babers on January first is no longer this team's football coach, I would be floored. Yeah, I mean, I would I would be surprised just based on how much confidence John Wildhack has shown in him. And you also, of course, have to then think, who could we go after as the next head coach if you're John Wildhack? Because that's another thing. You don't want to just get rid of a coach who has been here for now eight years without having a plan and without being able to bring in an even better coach. Because, I mean, Dino Babers was, at the time, a really solid hire. He was getting looked at by a number of other Power 5 schools. I grew up as someone who was a Maryland fan, and my family at the time, I remember I've talked to them about this, were very upset that Maryland didn't hire Dino Babers. And, I mean, is Maryland a better job than Syracuse at this point it is now that they're in the Big Ten and they have their incredible football facilities that are up in the top of the nation and have really dominated NIL. But Dino came here, and he was a really, really good hire based on what he did at the FCS level. And if he can get back to that and develop the players that he has now and you know, develop his LaQuinn Allens into someone who's like Sean Tucker, then maybe I think that he has a chance to stay. But you know, by the time that the 20, 
2023 recruiting class gets to their junior senior year, you know, where are your stars there? Because in the recruiting wise, there is, is no one that really jumps off the page. At what point are we saying this team has no future and every single year they're going to win four games. And if you're John Wildhack and your goal is to get to that 13th game every single year, which it should be higher, your goal should be to win eight, nine games a year just to, you know, be 500 is, I don't want to say loser talk, but it's definitely not where you should be as a program. Then at some point, you just got to look at changing things up because it's not working. And there's no upside, I feel like, at this point with Dino Babers. I think we have seen the best of Babers. I don't think it'll get much better from what we've seen. So that concludes the annual will he or will he not go Dino Babers talk. I'm sure we will have plenty more of these both on the Fizz and in everyday conversation around Central New York. Adam, just one more topic to get to. And, well, however this one goes, could help Dino Babers have a better case to stay or to leave. Number five. Topic number five here on Fizz 5. I'm Francesco Simone, joined by Adam Godkin. We thank you so much for spending part of your day with us. And Adam, the receiving core last year was Aronde Gadsden and everybody else, right? Devon Cooper, a seventh-year player, was your number two receiver. He's not playing college football anymore. You can't get an eighth year. You get you bring Damian Alford back. Isaiah Jones returns from injury. You got Demarcus Adams back. You got Kendall Long, who's a young player. Showed some things in the spring game. You have no idea what you have out of him. You know what you got in Gadsden. He's one of the best receivers in the ACC. Was an all-ACC tight end last year. You want to tell me he's a tight end? I'm going to tell you to shut up. He's not a tight end. He's a slot receiver. Anyway, besides the point. I'm more bullish on this receiver room than I think most are. The thing that excites me is the size. You got Gadsden, who's 6'5". You got 6'6", Damian Alford. You got 6'4", Isaiah Jones. If those guys can stay healthy, if those guys have gotten maybe a little bit better at running routes that are not, you know, 50-50 goal ball back shoulder throws from Garrett Schrader, I think you've got a really intriguing receiver room and one that's got a big catch radius for a quarterback in Schrader who's certainly not the most accurate guy in the world. I think that you just touched on that perfectly. If they can improve on their route running and run better, you know, short mid range routes, then you're talking about a potentially deadly RPO game with Schrader as quarterback, a guy who can, he can hand it off to LeQuinn Allen or Schrader can take off or boom, he can toss it over the middle to one of your huge receivers. That's something that is potentially, you know, really, really good and deadly and can make this offense really into something because I think that's where Garrett Schrader can be at his best, but he's got to have those guys step up. It's got to be someone, maybe it's Donovan Brown who redshirted last year, a guy who I know pretty well because I went to high school with him. He was a redshirt this their last year, made five appearances, including the bowl game as a track star, almost broke the Maryland records in a hundred meter dash. He doesn't fit that same mold as the other receiver that's a really tall guy, but he is a true speedster and one who's just 6'1". If you can have a guy like him step up after redshirting last year, then maybe you, you have a chance of becoming a dynamic offense. But you have to have something with these receivers to become dynamic and not just be a one-trick pony or really a two-trick pony of running the ball with your quarterback or 
just sending up a prayer to a Rondé Gatson who is as good as he is and is going to bring those in. To me, the biggest X factor could be Demarcus Adams, just because you mentioned needing more speed out there. That's the thing that Syracuse lacked last year because Rondé Gadsden, for as good as he is, is not going to line up outside and beat a corner on a 50-50 goal ball. You need somebody who can take the top off the defense because that means you can't put a safety on Gadsden in the middle. You got to keep somebody deep. Demarcus Adams ran track at FAU. He can fly, averaged 30 yards per reception on 30 catches last year. He had six catches. Sorry. He had six catches for 180 yards. Divide 180 by six, Adam. That's 30 yards per catch. There we go. Sorry for the math. He's he's the one guy on this team who I think can legitimately line up against somebody, run past them, and listen, Garrett Trader doesn't have the best arm in the world. Maybe it doesn't lead to a bunch of yards, but at least you give the defense a thought that, hey, I can get beat vertically, and that opens up the middle of the field so much more. Yeah, absolutely, because then the RPO game ends up working a lot more, and you can take make the most of those big receivers with not just having to send them deep every single time because you don't really need a safety back there if they're not going to beat you off the line because then you can just trust your quarterback to play one-on-one. And if, if you can have a true deep threat, then you're going to run the ball a lot better, and that's just – how the sport of football works, but I mean, Demarcus Adams has got to step things up six receptions last year, three at FAU the year before that. I mean, the issue is we've seen his speed, but when it comes to actually on the gridiron, I don't know if he's done anything to make any fans think this is a guy who can be your number two. Maybe he can't, maybe he really improves from last year to this year and can become that number two threat. But at the same time, no one throughout last year got much better and no one stepped into that number two role. I don't have the confidence that DeMarcus Adams is going to do that because what has he shown to prove us that? What has he shown to prove anyone the fact that I will be that number two because it's six receptions last year. And you know, that's a lot of faith for someone who barely made an impact and didn't even make a catch every game. The faith comes from somebody's got to do it, right? You can't make a trade. This is the roster that you got. So, you know, whether it's Adams, whether it's Alford, whether it's Isaiah Jones, somebody's got to become that number two option. And I think maybe even more importantly, all three of those guys need to become options that are actually viable. There was too many times last year where, okay, you double cover a Rondé Gadsden in the middle. Nobody else is getting open. Put everybody else on an island. The corner's going to shut them down. Don't even worry about it. Yeah, and that's what cannot happen because then you're talking about having a you know low safety and not keeping guys deep because you have the threat of that. And LaQuinn Allen is running into a box of seven, eight players. And LaQuinn Allen's good. I'm a big LaQuinn Allen fan. I He really impressed in the bowl game. And when he played against Wagner, I thought he was really good. But no running back is ever going to be successful when a team is stacking the box. And if you don't have those receivers to make a team, you know, play in the dime or in the nickel, then at what point are they just going to put seven, eight guys in the box every single play? And you can't, you can't be successful at that point because – I mean, Garrett Trader is not a true pocket passer. It's just not who he is. He's a really good running quarterback. He's one of the better running quarterbacks in all of college football. Now, I don't think he is as good as some of these analytics are saying he he is, who are saying he is one of the best returning quarterbacks in the entire country. I think that that is maybe a little bit, you know, 
uh, I don't know, I guess helpful towards him. I don't think he's up there, but at the same time, he he's good. He's just not good at being a pocket passer. And he needs these receivers to step up, especially early in the season, to just establish that you have that deep game and establish that, hey, we have these receivers here. So teams have to just focus on them and put a couple guys on them to make things easier for Schrader and Quinn Allen. All right, Adam, one word answer. Who is Syracuse's second leading receiver this coming season? Uh, Adams. I guess I have to say that in one word, but Demarcus Adams, I think that he's going to be it. He's the speedster on the other side of a Ronde and I think he gets them. I will say Adams is the X factor of the receiving room, but I think Damian Alford finally shows his production and becomes a true number two receiver for Syracuse. Adam, this was fun. I hope you enjoyed your first Fizz Five. Yeah, it was a good time. Always a good time talking about Syracuse. There we go. Check out all our articles at theorangefizz.net. Adam and myself will be back in a couple of weeks on Fizz 5. You get the pleasure of listening to Ethan Frank and Liam Griffin in a couple of weeks as well. Adam, it's a lot of fun. For Adam Gotkin, I'm Francesco Simone saying thank you so much for listening. And as always, go Orange. And that's your Fizz 5. Listen next week. Subscribe, rate, and review. This has been an Orange Fizz production.